0: Y'all, welcome back. I'm uh, I'm pretty excited to do this episode uh, for real, talking about the internet. And uh, as it turns out, guys, the internet is uh, difficult to understand. Uh, a lot of a lot of details, a lot of a lot of ins and outs. Trying to figure out how exactly how this all started and how this all works. Because I mean, genuinely, how are you listening to me right now? What is what is happening? How does any of this work? So let's uh, let's try and figure that out together. But before we start, I want to make sure we're on the same page. If you guys. Have you guys heard of this this in- internet? And look, I'll spare you my version of purposely mispronouncing the word internet. Like you know, all the cool kids with their slang, like the interwebs or the 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 webernets or, or I hear this one a lot. Uh, I don't know if you guys have either the the uh, the right now. during four Ford truck month. Buy a new F one fifty with zero money down, only four point nine percent interest or net. Boom, nailed it. That's the best one you've heard, and you're welcome. So, anyways, uh, the internet. As everyone knows, was invented by Al Gore, and if you don't get that reference, you're probably young enough to understand how Imgur works, which, uh, which I don't. I, I don't honestly even know if I'm saying that right. Is it Imgur? Imgur? I genuinely don't know. Uh, but also, you're probably young enough to understand that the planet is on fire, and global warming is a problem for everyone, but... I'm not here to discuss that. And honestly, I don't even know if that's what young people talk about or if they even believe it. That's just what I've read on the internet about today's youth. So that's why we're doing this episode on the good old interweber nester interest misters. You know, that thing we use every single day. According to technologyreview.com, the average American actually spends up to three hours a day online. And that article was from 2018 so, I mean, genuinely, I, I bet in like two years, I mean, sitting right now in early 2020, I bet you we're closer to four hours or more uh, on average per person per day. Like, I mean, genuinely, if, especially if you include like Spotify and Pandora and, you know, streaming services for TV shows and sports and, you know, ge- then seriously, genuinely, every single moment of my day, is spent on the internet with with something in the background at, at all times, like for real, every hour of every day. So thank God the modern internet is as fast as it is, and it doesn't take the incredibly long process that it once did just to get online. I mean, nowadays, if my phone is running kind of slow, I just turn off the Wi-Fi and then turn it back on, you know, just to like boost it. Back in the old days with dial-up, you couldn't turn off and back on. I mean, that'd take you like an hour. You'd to, like unplug, unplug like phone cables and like go outside and rewire. I mean, look, I am half kidding by calling AOL back in the day because apparently uh, I find out during my research AOL AOL was pretty late to the game. Uh, they didn't show up until 1989, and technically the first email was sent in 1969. But I'm getting ahead of myself. This episode we are talking about the internet. When when did it start? How did it start? And, in my opinion, more importantly, why? For what reason was the idea of instantly sharing information created? Well, like most giant leaps in technology, it was created with military purposes in mind.
1: So, let's begin at the beginning. But where do we start? Right here, at Goofy Clown Fight,
0: The Internet as we know it today, started in 1983. But what really got humanity on the the data-sending path was in 1957, the USSR launched Sputnik into orbit. Sputnik was the very first satellite sent to space. Uh, Fun facts about Sputnik, it was uh, roughly the size of a beach ball and less than 200 pounds. Uh, it's actually a lot smaller than I would expected, and it only circled the Earth for about three weeks, and then the batteries died, and it just kind of drifted off into space. Now, what does that have to do with the internet, you ask? I'll tell you. Thanks to these Ruskies sending out that satellite, the USA got all jelly belly. They started researching ways to use satellites to send information. Then in 1961, Leonard Kleinrock wrote a paper uh, while at MIT and this paper was entitled information flow in large communication nets you know like a, like a really big net that could span the entire globe or uh, you know something like a, like a world wide web if you will Leonard talked on these theories uh, basically for packet switching and outlined the basics for what would become today's internet then in 1965 uh, a crazy discovery happened or a crazy thing happened a computer, In Massachusetts, used a dial-up telephone line to communicate with another computer sitting in California, and this blew people's minds. Which, I mean, of course it did. These people didn't know anything. I mean, look, as far as I'm concerned, any and all people living before 1960 had no grasp of the world around them. Most people, all they knew were just things they were told from either, you know, school teachers or church folk or from a neighbor. And like all those things are fine. I'm nothing against learning from those types of people. But the amount of information that was, you know, shared between church, school, and neighborhoods doesn't come anywhere near to the total wealth of knowledge that is on the modern day internet. So I mean, you know, look, I, I get it. There were you know Harvard professors and Yale grads and people that traveled the world and learned plenty, and that's fine. They all knew it, and if you hung out with them, maybe you knew a little bit more than everybody. But I mean, still, the majority of the population of Earth, they they didn't know anything about life. I mean, just in a, in a large scale general sense, they didn't know jack shit. So in my mind, as far as I'm concerned, anyone that lived before the internet. I, these were just primitive baboons, I mean, as, genuinely, they, they might as well have been you know the talking monkeys from the Planet of the Apes, like that's what I consider everyone that grew up time before like 1960. It's just It's just too it's just sorry, it sucks for you, but you didn't know anything. So these networks grew, and you know more computers were linked across the country, and you know we were learning more and more on how these systems worked and how they all you know could kind of interconnect and how, how this could help us as a species. and then in 1969. A pivotal project gets rolled out. The USA developed what they called the ARPANET. That's A R P A N E T, uh, basically standing for Advanced Research Projects Agency Network. This was run by the you know the United States Defense Department. So you hear that the rest of the world. Not only did America invent freedom, we also invented the, the internet. You ungrateful motherfuckers. Joking about freedom, obviously, but not the ARPANET. We did, actually, we, I didn't have anything to do with it, but Americans really did invent this thing. Now, look, I have to admit, right off the bat, I don't know much about fancy blinking light computational devices. I I just don't. Uh, I'm ignorant on anything that has to do with data transferring, so just kind of go with me here. Best I can tell, the ARPANET uh, originally was a packet-switching network that could share these packets of information, you know, basically files, but they can only do it really slowly. This ARPANET went on to implement the TCP/IP systems, IP standing for Internet Protocol, uh, which was, you know, like your like your digital point of reference uh, used for sending and receiving information online. Much like your home address and your mailbox, like that's your that's your physical point of reference. That's where you can mail things to and have things, you know, have people mail to you at. Like, it's The term IP address is what came out of that, which is your online mailbox. It's your online address. So this ARPANET, it originally used packet switching to send information. And look, y'all go with me here. Packet switching takes a message and breaks it down into a bunch of smaller pieces. And it sends each piece to a computer, which then sends it to another computer. And they string it along through a series of interconnected computers, but not necessarily on the same path. You know, some went down like, you know, they, look, for a poorly constructed metaphor, imagine you're in high school and you're passing notes through class, but you don't sit next to your friend. Say you sit, you know, kind of close to the far back left of the room, but your friend sits up in the, you know, the front right of the room. So you can't just hand him a message straight away. You got to pass it to John who passes it to Lisa who passes it, you know. It kind of has to go along a, a, a path through a bunch of other people. But imagine these people are these computers. So for a metaphor, originally, Information as it was, these packets or these files of information, you couldn't send very much data because it just, you know, as a concept to go with it, imagine if you were sending this note to your friend, but each word weighed like three pounds per word. So even just a few sentences would be gigantic and way too heavy to, you know, try and pass along this, you know, this, this human chain or this, you know, computer chain. So if you were trying to send thirty words to someone back in the day on one email, you couldn't do it. In the same way that if you were trying to send thirty words that all weighed three pounds, you, you it'd be like ninety pounds. You couldn't just hand that to, to Susan and then hand that to Stevie. You, know, you had to break it down into smaller packets. So imagine in this early days of the ARPANET, the, the information was all you know, super heavy, to you know, pick a term that doesn't really apply. But you know what I mean? It was, it was too heavy to send. Or it was too large to send. So, for instance, you had to break this message up into like five different pages. You put a couple of words on each page and just numbered each page. And then you handed one page to the person to your left and one to the person in front of you and one to the person behind you and one to your right and one down to the, And you just gave it all. You gave each page to a different person. And then those five people gave it to five other people who all kind of got a little bit closer. And then, you know, maybe down the line, down the line, after handing it off four or five times, all the way up to the front and all the way up to the right, it eventually got to your friend, who could then compose that message based on the numbers and then read the message. So, you know, it, it, it... I know, this is, this is a terrible metaphor, I, I admit that, but it's, it's it's the best I can do to construct this. You know, you handed a piece to Stephen, who handed it to Mary, who handed it to Lisa, and then eventually got it to your friend, and that that was one pathway. But then the other piece went to a different buddy, say, it went to Lucas, who then went to, you know, so every message went slightly different, every packet went down a slightly different pathway. And eventually it all got to where it was going, and that's what the ARPANET did, more or less. Every message was broken down into multiple pieces and sent different directions through different computers and ending up eventually at the receiver's IP address. And this this is A, possibly the worst metaphor you've ever heard, and B, it's incredibly archaic. This concept is is bizarre, I know, but just imagine a a wired telephone and then compare it to the smartphone that's in your pocket right now. Of course it's archaic. This was the beginning. It was the basics, so just kind of, you know, go with me. Eventually... A dude named Ray Tomlinson in 1972, he created uh, email as we use it today. He's the guy that's credited with using that spiral A at symbol. Uh, He was the first to designate someone's username that way. You know, it's basically the first time that you ever got to use username at name of computer. Uh, And and originally, I mean, these really were all like simplistic names of computers like because up until now, You've had to remember each person's IP address, which was a 20-digit numeric code. So it, Much like when you go to your friend's house and you ask for the Wi-Fi password and they haven't changed it to something that's more you know, user-friendly, they just kept the one that was given to them by the company. So it's, this is like 38-digit fucking haiku that you have to type in. Well, Ray Tomlinson realized that that was not going to work. Everybody wasn't going to be able to remember you know, everyone else's 20-digit numeric code, especially if you had 50 friends. You weren't going to remember all that nonsense. So let everyone pick their own username. It's way more user-friendly. It's way more personable. And that way you can just correlate that with your IP address. And originally this plan was super successful because there were only a few computers and the host name or the, you know, the computer name was pretty simple. It was genuinely things just like John at UC Berkeley or Sharon at MIT.com. Like those were real email addresses back in the day. They might still work. I don't know. Probably not. But either way, those were legit early on email addresses. Nowadays, you know, we've had to change it to hosting programs, large scale, like at Hotmail or at Gmail, you know, that kind of stuff. But, and look, so I mean, you know, whatever, but that's, it's basically all the same idea. Now, I couldn't find what Ray's original email name was. I'm guessing it was something like Ray at MIT, but I couldn't find it. I really really tried. But either way, whatever it was, I'm guessing it was something generic and boring and that Ray had no idea. That however many years later, kids on Xbox Live, they'd change their usernames to stuff like Dick Poop69 or Your Mom's a Ho 420. You know, things like that. Brilliant stuff. Then 1974 comes around. The transmission control protocol slash internet protocol is designed. I mean, it's what you've seen it written down. And I never knew what it was. It's the TCP slash IP. Like it's it's a lot of places that I've never really noticed until like starting to look this stuff up, but it's everywhere if you if you look around. Best I can tell, this was a way for all of the smaller ARPANET-style connect- connected networks, they could all combine into one unregulated network. This new, larger network, it, it had no like central control. And you know, by the use of this TCP protocol, it would connect pretty much everybody that could dial up and log on. So imagine, you know, back essentially your ARPANET was like a, was like a swim lane. If you go to the pool and they have the lanes that are clearly blocked off by those like floaty deals on ropes, like they were, they're very clearly defined, and you, everybody, you know, you stay in your own lane. But now, thanks to this new TCP/IP protocol, it was just open swim. They pulled all the lanes, and if you could log on, you're just in the pool, and you can kind of go anywhere, swim anywhere. It, it's, it's just it opened it up to a wider array of users, and people could do more with it, and could just more people could be on it just in general. Then, three years later, Dennis Hayes developed the first personal computer modem. Uh, this was revolutionary. In 1977, Dennis made it possible for anybody at home. You didn't have to be at MIT or at UC Berkeley. Like you could just be a dude at home, and now you could log in to this new central hub. And you know that that changed the game. <laughs> and then, less than one year later, not coincidentally, spam emails started pouring in. Yeah, literally less than a year after you know everybody was able to use computers, the ever-present advertising dollar saw a new revenue stream and started throwing commercials in people's faces just via email. Now, you want to feel old? Guess when the first emoji was made. Now, technically, it was an emoticon, not an emoji, but I mean, look, you get the point. That standard smiley face, just equal sign for the eyes and then parentheses for the mouse for the mouth. That you know the most basic smiley face emoticon ever. That was first invented in 1982, and look, I I realize to call that an invention, at least to me, that that's that's a stretch. Similar to calling Columbus, you know, discovering America. It wasn't an invention, nor did he discover anything. But I digress. A feller by the name of Scott Fallman. He earned his master's degree at MIT. you're gonna, apparently a lot of these dudes were all MIT. like I get it like in the early days of the internet it was all computers it was all really smart dudes. Again, I don't understand any of this stuff, so go with me. Scott Fallman he was a computer science professor at Carnegie Mellon. He had his master's degree from MIT in computer sciences. he knew science stuff he knew computer science stuff. He first suggested the you know the smiley and the frowny emoticons being used to convey emotions online which I mean, look, it's not some huge discovery, but you got to credit him for seeing the problem. I mean, even nowadays, if you're texting somebody, it's hard to sense sarcasm. Like, and and nowadays you get to use emoticons and emojis. I mean, hell, you can send a full video. Like, you, you can express emotion a lot more clear nowadays than you ever could. But, I mean, back then it had to be... I mean, I would imagine it was damn near impossible. You know what I mean? Like, you could send all kinds of stuff nowadays, and people still misinterpret things. But back then, you had nothing. So you just had to guess. So Scott, he said, and look, he was so far ahead of his time. This is a real quote. This is a real quote from his post on September 19th, 1982. Scott Fallman, quote, I propose that the following character sequence be used for joke markers. Smiley face, red sideways. Actually, it's probably more economical to mark things that are not jokes, given the current trends for non-jokes use the frowny face. End quote. See y'all, this dude, he literally predicted back in the day that that you were going to have to put when you were joking and when you weren't because he knew that eventually everyone was going to be a sarcastic asshole online and you're going to want a way to distinguish when you're being sarcastic and when you're not. So we have the new email system in place, and that made it a lot easier. You can use names, which, is, which obviously are easy to remember because it's just your buddy's name at wherever he is hanging out. But until now, to get anywhere online, you had to be able to you know, remember and type in perfectly the IP address, which was not just a 20-digit sequence like the, like the old you know, emails were. You had to type in a 39-character, seemingly random number and letter, CODE. And that would get you to, you know, the kind of sort of the website or whatever you call the website back in the day. You know, again, much like your friend's Wi-Fi password. It's just nonsense. And then thankfully, in 1984, people figured out the domain name system or DNS. Basically, you can type in words. And that'll correspond to the IP address numbers. So you can remember a phrase instead of an absurdly long sequence of numbers. You know, kind of like 1-800 numbers do. I mean, the, the actual telephone number is, you know, 1-800-589-6423. But then on the commercials like 1-800, you know, kill bugs or whatever. That doesn't even work because that's eight letters. But you know what I mean. Whatever it is they're selling, that they put a, a cute little, and you get it. That's the point. And that's what they were doing with web pages. Instead of a long string of numbers, they gave you just a word.com that you could remember. Because look, I mean imagine imagine a modern YouTuber back in the day trying to promote his page. You know, like just picture like, hey guys, if you enjoyed this video, then head over to my webpage at five six two three seven dot three seven five four dash eight four B twelve seven one two three six six nine five for merch and other cool stuff, be sure to like and subscribe. That's uh <laughs> That, that's, my, that's my impersonation of a YouTuber. I don't even, all right, moving on. So 1988, Internet Relay Chat is developed, which, uh, I mean, it, it was the building blocks for things like, you know, AOL Instant Messenger and all the other instant messaging services. I mean, look, I use Slack at work like every day now. And thanks to this thing in 1988, the Internet Relay Chat, that's what let all these things develop. Uh, the only thing is, in 1988, AOL doesn't exist yet. But then in 1989, AOL shows up. And oh, baby, I don't know if y'all are with me here, but I spent so many afternoons and and nights and just typing away on AIM. It was genuinely one of my favorite things to do. Like, at the time, it was mind-blowing stuff. You could conversate with multiple people at the same time. Like, I could be talking to six different people on six different little windows. Or you could merge all six of them into a chat room of just your friends. And then you could send pictures and and links to websites. You could all be playing the same kind of... (laughs) pathetic little flash games, but, you know, all that kind of stuff was amazing, and it was so much fun. And then, you know, as an added bonus after spending, you know, two to three hours a day typing on AIM with my friends, nowadays, thankfully, I can genuinely type over 100 words a minute. And I, I mean, I, I never tried to, I was never you know, purposely aiming for that. But I just credit spending that much time on aim with friends. And now I'm able to type, you know, wicked fast. Mostly, I'm able to type wicked fast about things like the MTV real world versus road rules challenge. I don't know if you all remember watching that. but That's mostly what we talked about. Shout out to the Miz. I don't know how you made a real career out of that show, brother, but well done. So, uh, early '90s, AOL exists, and soon you know dozens of other companies join the game. There's just so many different players and people that are doing this, and this pushes ARPANET pretty much out. ARPANET just you know it can't keep up with the new blazing fast speeds of dial-up internet. I mean, AOL was bragging about 56 kilobits per second download speeds. And just to put that in perspective i mean at the time it was fast don't get me wrong it was was amazing but today the average internet speeds is somewhere around 94 megabits per second uh there's there's a thousand kilobits in a megabit so i mean literally this arpanet thing and packet switching it was just it was too slow to keep up with 56 kilobits per second and nowadays we're averaging 94,000 kilobits per second so just imagine how much faster it'll be in 20 years I mean, I can't even, in, in 100 years, information will probably travel at the speed of thought. Like, I genuinely believe you'll be able to just think about your buddy and think about what you want to, and they'll just be listening in if you really, like, like I know I'm getting my head I get ahead of myself here, but, like, I, it, it fascinates me to no end of what the, the ceiling to this thing could be, but right now, we're still in the early 90s, uh, and the thing that basically started it all, the ARPANET, finally came to an end, and then there was this large wave of commercial dial-up ISP services. Everyone had access to the internet now. At least potentially, as long as you're a Westerner, but you know what I mean. And this opened the digital Pandora's box, which has never been closed. And it continues to create crazier creatures every year. 1991 was the very first web page Which, honestly, I didn't know what that meant When I first saw that Because, like, what was the internet then in the 80s? Because, like, these were all Because web pages, apparently, after I look at it They were, I mean, they were basically just text It was just similar to, like, MS-DOS But, you know, that that was, you know, whatever So, I mean, things progressed I mean, new web pages and new designs And new and shinier and better looking And then 1995 comes And the big hitters of commerce Just just, eBay and Amazon The titans of modern consumerism. They started small in the mid-90s, and obviously have grown. Uh, eBay is now worth $42 billion. And more successful even than eBay was eBay's little startup offshoot brand child company, PayPal. (laughs) PayPal is now worth over $100 billion. Jeff Bezos, uh, you know you know who he is. But in case you don't, uh, I did an episode on billionaires. Go look that up. But Jeff Bezos is worth he's like thirty to fifty billion dollars, depending on the day and current market trends. I mean, like you don't you don't need me to explain any further what these things are. And clearly, you're listening to this online. You're probably well aware of what those things are. So, 1996. Hotmail is released, which y'all at the time it was the first uh, large-scale webmail service to exist. Like you know, like I said, you had to be either at UC Berkeley or MIT or whatever other university or large-scale, you know, FBI. Anyways, you as a person could have your own email address now, just as 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 a dude. <laughs> and speaking of dude, legitimately, my first email address, <laughs> God, this is, my first email address was doobydudexxx at hotmail.com. I was like 12. I didn't know what a doobie was. Certainly nothing about my life was rated triple X. I just heard some older kids call their friend a doobie dude and I wanted to be cool like them, so I took it and ran with it. My mom (laughs) was not happy. When she found out that I had chosen that uh, as my name for my email address. And at the time, I should have asked her why she knew what a doobie was, but that's not the point of this episode. So Hotmail, they pretty much ran the, the email market for a long time. And obviously, they're still around today, but obviously, they've, they've fallen off. And they don't know. Gmail clearly has taken over, but that's not the point. Gmail started around when uh, when Google showed up in 1998. And for those of us older enough to remember Google and, and Ask Jeeves and Yahoo I means all the search engines were everybody was more or less the same back then. Google has become the preeminent like they are the number 1 now, but back then they were still young and still new and all that. But in my opinion, 1998 brought us a far more revolutionary website. At, at least at the time, it was incredibly revolution, revolutionary to me. 1998 brought us Napster. God bless you, Sean Parker. I know you'll never listen to this, but God bless you. Sean Parker created Napster, and that man influenced I mean, me and literally millions of other people's musical tastes and helped broaden all of our musical horizons. From ninety eight to two thousand one, I downloaded so much music. Now, I I don't know if I can still get sued for saying any of this stuff, so before I give a number to it, I'm gonna say allegedly. Uh, everything I say moving forward may or may not be true, and I might just be saying it for uh, effect. I'm not. This really happened. But allegedly, allegedly, I downloaded 50,000 songs. I mean, probably more. Seriously, probably more. I mean, this is what this is what I would do. And I, don't, I don't know if you guys are like me. I'm pretty sure you were. If I heard one song that I liked on the radio, I'd go home and I'd immediately download every song and every album that band had ever released. Uh, it, except it wasn't immediate at all. It wouldn't take entire weekends, like literally entire weekends. I'd start downloading a discography on Friday. And then by Sunday afternoon, I'd have every album that Jimmy Eat World had ever released. And that's, that's a true story. And to this day, I still only remember that one song of theirs that I liked, even though I downloaded six out al- Allegedly downloaded six albums. <laughs> For any of you that don't remember Napster, um, it, was, it, it was like a digital fax machine. If you had music on your computer and I wanted to copy it, you could. It didn't take anything from you. Physically, nothing changed on your computer. But you allowed yourself, you opened yourself up to me and anyone else to just copy what it was you had. Uh, and, And then we both had it permanently. Like, it, it, was, it was amazing. It was, as far as I'm concerned, it was magic. And this pissed off the music industry something fierce. Huge names like Dr. Dre and Metallica and others, they all sued Sean Parker. And they ended Napster forever. But it, by this point, it was too late. Clones had popped up, you know, LimeWire and the Pirate Bay. I mean, the, the idea of, quote, stealing music, and quote, that became a national talking point. I mean, you'd go to the movie theaters, and there would be, you know, scare campaigns. You wouldn't steal a car, would you? And, I mean, I don't even know whose joke it is. But, I mean, yeah, no, if I, if I could just click a button and download a car, I mean, I'd absolutely do that. But the point is, you could make copies of movies or games or software. I mean, things like Microsoft Word, like billion-dollar industries were getting pissed off. And that's where the, the phrase got coined. I don't know who did it, but internet pirating which just made it sound even cooler to kids my age at the time. Whenever I'd see commercials, don't be an internet pirate. like, dude, I wanna do that. That sounds awesome. I'm gonna go pirate a movie right now. And it's like, you know, all kids do. It's like, you know what? Hell yeah, Josh, go pirate a movie. AKA go use your family's computer in the middle of the living room and start a download. Then four hours and 38 viruses later, we can all watch Rookie of the Year starring Daniel Stern on a tiny little screen that buffers every 20 minutes. I want to, at this time, welcome back a friend of the show, uh, the creator of the Danish Daniel Stern fan club, Mildred Jorgensen. You all remember Mildred, the Danish housewife who learned how to love and what love is thanks to Daniel Stern's performance in Home Alone. Uh, If not, check out uh, episode 7 based on holidays. Celebrate, bitches! It's good stuff. But uh, for now, please give a warm round of applause for Mildred Jorgensen.
1: Yes, hello and thank you for having me, I'm sure all of you remembers the film classic Rookies of the Years. The touching stories of a young man's who breaks his arm, not both of them, don't go down that road you freaks, but this young man breaks his arms and then she is able to throw 100 miles an hour's fastballs. It's a classic story in Denmark's. All grandparents read it to their grandchildren at Spence Times. More importantly, I'm sure you all remember how Daniel Stern's performance stole the show, playing the lovable Brickman. Oh, Brickman, always getting stuck in places like closets or hotel doorways. He makes me laugh and laugh. However... I'm not sure. All of you know this, but Daniel Stearns actually directed Rookie Shot which the movies won a coveted ASCAP's Awards. That's a prestigious Academy of Film Awards. A wonderful organization who truly encapsulates the arts and modern comedic, modern comedic climates. Nothing like those rat fuck Bastards at the American Comedy Awards, who nominated Daniel for his performance in City Slickers, but did not give him the award. They gave the award to Jack Palance, who was also in City Slickers. Jack Palance's character was seen as a straight man. He was not a comedic actor in the film. He would have been nothings without Daniel's antics. Daniels gave the film levity and brightness and hope, whereas Jack was too dry and he was barely even considered a comedic performer. I hope the American Comedy Awards and everyone having to do with them all rots in hells for their absolute robberies of Daniel Sterns. I swear if I ever meet anyone from the ACAPs, I will beat stems to death with a badminton's cricket back. I will shove a shuttlecock so far up their asses that their unborn children will feel it when they come out of the womb. I swear that I was Okay, Mildred, I'm going
0: to cut you off there. Thank you for coming in. We do appreciate your time. Uh, you're welcome back anytime, just not right now. So, yeah. Pirating music and, and movies like The Rookie of the Year uh, became incredibly easy to do. So I really I can't even blame the big corporations for coming down so hard on it. I really don't. Now, I mean, look, I don't actually give a fuck about these big corporations because financially they'll be all right. And, and I'm sure, honestly, they've probably done a ton of illegal shit. Allegedly. I can't prove any of that shit. Allegedly. But I'm sure they're all horrible people. You don't get to be a billionaire. Anyways, Napster and LimeWire and Pirate Bay and all the others. There were, there were so many at that point. They were, at least by the you know point of view or the legal point of view of these companies, they were stealing, and or at least allowing other people to, to steal or you know whatever. So it, it, look, I, I got to admit, I, I do I, I kind of see why these big companies were mad. Now, I personally, I'm in a spot early on in my podcast career or, or whatever you want to call this. I mean, I, I'd personally be delighted if someone pirated this bullshit and sent it to anyone. So please go ahead. But I'm sure if I'm, if I was Metallica. You know, if I was Dr. Dre making millions of millions of dollars, I'd probably want to keep that money. But, I mean, also, if I had millions and millions of dollars, why would you give a shit? So, I mean, look, I don't know. Point is, 1998 and then forward, the Internet was the new frontier. It was the wild, wild west, but digital. If you could think of it, if you could, you know, it could pretty much anything could be done. I mean, so many games and songs and videos, all kinds of random stupidity and fun was created and shared during this time, and it was it was awesome. I think it's worth noting uh, now that William Von Meister, uh, he's the creative dude behind AOL. Now, he had the idea of of selling music on demand online in 1983. But Warner Brothers didn't like the idea. Warner Brothers said that it would never catch on. People like CDs too much. People like, I don't even know if CDs really exist, but people like physically having copies of their music, records and cassettes. I mean, can you believe—holy hell, like— in 1983 they could have been the first Apple music player or Spotify or anything. They could they would have by now they would have a stranglehold on the digital music world. Things like Spotify and Pandora would never exist because they would have had this shit copyrighted from the early 80s. I mean that is an all-time bad decision right there. Warner Brothers just thought that no one would catch on. Meanwhile, it's the only thing that anyone does anymore. When's the last time you bought physically music? Like, when's the last time you bought a CD? I genuinely don't know. I can't remember the last time I bought a CD. Like, I wonder, truly, I wonder how many concepts are brought up in boardrooms across the country and across the world. And these, these ideas that are amazing, these ideas that are truly revolutionary, and they all get shot down just by some, you know, some old white dudes in expensive suits. Old white dudes whose version of the future is boring as fuck, but they run shit, so these awesome ideas never see the light of day. Unreal. So yeah, from 1983 to 1988. Nine. sorry, from 1983 to 1998, music was sold as it always had been. But now, in the late 90s, a drastic change of direction showed up. You could copy your friend's music collection online, then you could burn it to a CD. CD burners came out. Like You could download music for free and put it on a $0.07 CD that you bought in bulk. I mean, just imagine that. For any of you out there that that have always had digital downloads, like anybody that's under like 22, I don't know, whatever. For anyone that's under whatever age has always had digital music, you don't have a smartphone. You don't have Spotify. If you wanted to listen to a thing of music, you either had to catch it on the radio or buy it or borrow it from a friend. And for those of us that didn't have that much money, like I didn't have money to buy hundreds on hundreds of CDs. Like Spotify, I've got so many albums saved in my favorites. Like if I had to buy all that, I'd go broke. I mean, I'd literally be upside. I'd be negative thousands of dollars. Like you couldn't. You couldn't physically own all the music you wanted to. So you had to borrow a lot. I remember me and my friends having to physically circulate CDs or even cassettes. Like you had to drive to your buddy's house, pick it up, and then drive it back home to listen to it. Yeah, and then you had to hope. I mean, if you were the one that lent it, you had to hope that the guy that took it had to return it. And wasn't, you know, fucking Richard the douchebag who copied my, who said he was just going to copy my corn freak on a leash set. Said he was going to copy it, you motherfucker. Then never gave it back. Then claimed he lost it. Listen, Richard, I didn't forget about you. All right, look, I'm going to pull back. I'm going to pull back. No need to go down that road right now. But seriously, Richard, I haven't forgotten you, motherfucker. Moving on. Imagine physically having to do all that work just to borrow a movie or a song or whatever. And then suddenly, all you had to do was just type a few words on your computer and then wait a little bit. And then, boom, you had it. You owned it. You didn't have to worry about returning it back to Blockbuster. You didn't have to worry about giving your CD back to your friend. Not to mention, you didn't have to worry about scratching it. The CDs were so easily scratched. Cassette tapes, if the little, like, windy thing got broke, you were you were screwed. I mean, it was, it was awful. I mean, there was literally... It, there's a reason Blockbuster made so much money on their BS late fees. Because if you've lost it or dropped it or just forgot, they could just charge you. I mean, In fact, in fact, hey, Mildred, Mildred, you still here? All right, we're going to bring back Mildred for a second, guys. One sec. Hey, Hey, Mildred. I heard that Blockbuster, I heard they said Daniel Stern
1: sucks. (laughs) What? Blockbusters. I hate you. You and your late fees stoss billions from the general public. Fuck you and your bullshit business model, you greedy cack sucked. Okay, Mildred,
0: thank you for your time. Uh, and everybody, just for the record, uh, me and my staff here at But What Do I Know, we don't necessarily condone the views expressed by Mildred, but in this specific case, uh, I do. Fuck Blockbuster. You guys suck. I'm glad you went out of business. 2003 myspace is invented what up tom how you been boy that motherfucker is worth 60 million dollars and now look i, I know mark zuckerberg is worth like 75 billion but i mean mark zuckerberg is a soulless android that literally spies on you and sells your personal information i'd much rather be tom tom's a cool motherfucker like look at mark lately have you seen mark lately his eyes are dead now look i'm jealous of his wealth Obviously, I'm not denying that. $74 billion, good Lord. But I'd much rather be Tom. Tom seems like a cool dude. I'd hang out with Tom. Mark, I don't trust being in the same room as Mark. I don't even know if he's human. Like, I don't, no, no, no. But one thing, uh, MySpace did show up first, 2003, and then Tom sold out and good for him. Facebook came around in 2004. And for those of you old enough to remember back in 2004, you had to have a verified college email address just to log in. Like you couldn't just be a dude, even if you were the same. Like you had to be roughly the same age as everybody. But even if you were and you weren't going to school, you didn't. You weren't allowed to have a Facebook. I had to have a verifiable Baylor dot uh, email address just to get a Facebook page. It was it was much different than it was now. Like it was bizarre back then. It was very limited, but you know whatever. So be it. 2005, YouTube shows up, and as far as I'm concerned, this was the beginning of the end for cable television. For the first time ever, there was a service, YouTube, and it allowed anyone to make videos and just put them out in public. I mean, until until YouTube, if you wanted to show whatever crappy film or thing you videotape and you wanted to show the world, you had to purchase airtime on local access television, and that only got showed to the people in your town. And that's if your town had a local access television. Like You, you pretty much had no options up until now. And now, you could post all kinds of nonsense for free, and man, it was awesome. I mean, seriously, I I could reminisce for at least 55 minutes about all the old videos. I could drone on and on until, you know, I could probably bore you until you wanted to grab a rusty spoon with your salad fingers and jam it into your ears. I mean, I could talk seemingly forever. I could rant until each one of us is old and our hair is Greg. But I won't, because you don't want to see my downstairs mix-up. Moving on. 2006, Twitter comes out, which... (laughs) All right, but I guess this is as good a time as any to tell you that I, I have a Twitter page now for this podcast. It's uh it's at just the letters, but what do I know, cast. So, just the letters, B-W-D-I-K, cast. B-W-D-I-K-C-A-S-T. That's for all my millions of fans out there. please uh, Please reach out to me. So yeah, Twitter, (laughs) whatever. Twitter popped up in 2006 and obviously has made a huge impact on social media. However, since I signed up for Twitter literally yesterday, I I have no idea how it works. I don't. I don't. I have no idea. So I don't really know much about it. But Twitter was unique in that uh, it gave people a place for short form expression. Facebook, you could type, you could rant for paragraphs on end, just sharing all types of personal details and opinions that you'll probably regret later. And a quick side note, I am so glad I didn't have Twitter or Facebook or any of this stuff when I was like 15. I'd have said some stupid shit. I'd have regretted that hard. I might regret this episode in 20 years, but certainly not as bad as I would have been regretting all the unbelievably ignorant stuff I would have said as a young teen. Good lord that shit's permanent that's scary but regardless twitter now it gave you i don't know how many characters you're allowed to have but you know unlike facebook where you can post paragraphs twitter forced you to make your point concise which i honestly i like i think that's a good thing i think that helps at least drive points forward as opposed to just rambling on then in 2007 hulu starts its online streaming service Netflix had existed for a while, uh, I mean, actually since 1999, but they, all they did, all they were from 1999 to 2000 was they would mail you DVDs and then you mailed them back. I mean, that's it seems incredibly archaic now, but, you know, whatever. But anyways, in 2007, uh, Netflix and Hulu both went online. So, I mean, everything was everything was on demand. Unlike back in 99, when cable TV had the TV Guide channel. I don't know if they still, is that still a thing? It might still be a thing. I don't know. But either way, back then, all you had, the only way to find out what was on TV was to watch this slow scroll of just every channel. How archaic does that sound? I mean, right now, everything is on demand. I have Hulu Live, or I have, yeah, I have Hulu and Netflix, and neither one have commercials except for Hulu Live. That's a whole separate thing. You had to sit there. And watch a slow ticker of every channel with just program namings going by. And if you you know had to go to the bathroom or something and you missed what was on ESPN, you had to come back and wait like four minutes till it came back around. It, it was absurd. It was absolutely mind boggling. But yeah, so anyways, Hulu and Netflix, they put their stuff online and this changed everything. No more waiting, you know, no do you wanted to watch something? It was just click and it's on. It was just instant. Everything was instant. And I know this seems so commonplace today, but at the time it was revolutionary. I mean, get this. Seriously, y'all, my kids are pretty young, and we've never had cable TV in their lifetimes. We've just never had it. We have Netflix, and we have Hulu play and no commercials, and all that stuff, but we've never had cable TV. So my kids have grown up, seriously, never having seen a commercial. They don't know what a commercial is. We have Spotify without ads. We have TV without ads. They don't know what a commercial is. Now, we went to a hotel recently. We were traveling to see it doesn't matter. And my wife and I, we were unpacking. So we just turned the TV on to distract the kids. Y'all sit here and watch, you know, Disney Channel or something. Doesn't matter. And we went to go do stuff, you know, unpack and put things and all that. Well, a few minutes in, my son is suddenly, he's not like mad, mad. I don't even know how to describe the, 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 the emotion that he has, but it's a real emotion. And he yells, dad, dad, the cartoons stop, fix the TV. And I was busy like putting stuff in a drawer, you know, whatever the heck I was doing. So I, I turned and I was like, "What, man? What do you, what do you mean?" He's like, "Dad, the TV broke. The cartoon stopped. What is this? What's going on?" So I walk over. TV's fine, of course. It's just a commercial. But I realized then, he's never seen a commercial. His entire life, he's been able to watch a show from start to finish uninterrupted. I mean, that's a beautiful thing. It's truly that's that's amazing. But now, picture me trying to explain to a four-year-old that I can't actually fix the TV. I can't get his cartoon back on any faster because this is a commercial A concept. He has no idea what that even is. So for the first time in his life, my son has to watch Shaq sell car insurance. My son doesn't know who Shaq is. He doesn't know what car insurance is. And up until right now, this very moment, he didn't know what a commercial even was. So he is Beyond confused and getting more and more angry by the second because some giant bald man interrupted his show and from my son's point of view that's never happened before so there's something wrong that the TV's broken like I can't I don't have words to put into like the feeling in that moment to realize a how privileged kids are these days. But B, just how amazing shit is and how lucky we are. So, I mean, I, I'm not going to, I don't want to be the old guys like, oh, you kids, now, like, I didn't walk uphill both ways in, to school. Like, I had commercials. So like, what am I really complaining about? Anyways, moving on. Hulu and Netflix, they pretty much, I mean, they, as far as I'm concerned, they delivered the death blow to cable in 2010. Uh, the FCC had a landmark decision. This was huge. Uh, the FCC called it the Open Internet Order, which. Basically made it illegal for cable. There were back then companies pretty much sold TV and internet as a package. At least where I was from, in most places I remember, like you you bought cable and internet at the same time. And all these companies that sold these bundles didn't want their customers only buying the internet and just you know then paying nine bucks a month for Netflix and not having to pay hundreds of dollars a month for you know some three hundred channel TV package. I mean, weird how nine dollars a month for everything you want with no commercials is better than hundreds of dollars a month for a bunch of channels you never watch so these you know cable internet pack package companies whatever they blocked netflix and hulu so like if you typed in www.netflix.com it just wouldn't load so you didn't you didn't have a choice to stream you you weren't allowed you were forced to watch tv the old school way that's you know until the fcc stepped in and said uh, and look i'm going to paraphrase here Uh, i've read the 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 open internet order but it's something i'm just going to paraphrase but more or less the fcc said quote Hey, cable companies, you unevolved, greedy bastards. You're not allowed to just block stuff because it's competition, you rotten motherfuckers. Fuck you and your 300 channel packages. There's only like 15 good channels anyway, and Hulu has all of them. You rotten, old technology-having-ass dinosaur motherfuckers. End quote. Uh, Yeah, now look, clearly... Uh, One, I didn't know Mildred worked for the FCC, and two, obviously that's a paraphrase, but they did really say that. I mean, just less motherfuckers and stuff, but they really did say that. Like, you're not allowed to just ban your competition. Like, that's, you can't do that. And that's, you know, th- that was the end. As far as I'm concerned, that was the end. And it brought about, you know, this new era like YouTube TV and and Hulu Live and you know, giant battles for streaming rights and you know, Hulu has live sports and all that other nonsense like that that's that's still happening today and it's brand new. It's still unfolding and the direction it's taking is is fun to watch and it's fun to be a part of. Now, I want to take a quick moment. Uh, I want to thank Chris Galloway on behance.net. Uh, That's B-E-H-A-N-C-E dot net uh, for the majority of those dates that I've referenced thus far. He made a great infographic on the topic, which really helped my research. It really helped push me in the right directions and at least show me where to start. So, I mean, seriously, Chris, I know you'll never listen to this, but for Rizzles, much appreciated, bruv. You're the man. So that's the timeline of the Internet so far. But, But what does that mean for, you know, all of us, for society moving forward? I mean, it, it, it's obvious the way people interact has changed drastically in the last few decades, but it, especially over the last century. So, I mean, just, just go with this timeline for a second. Depending on your personal belief on, you know, or for how old human beings are, Homo sapiens, humans, are anywhere from, I mean, at, at minimum 200,000 years old to I mean, upwards of 6 million or more years old. So regardless of your belief— The last 90 years, by comparison to the entirety of human history, is nothing. It's a blink of an eye. No matter what you sit there believing, it doesn't matter. We all agree that for at least 99.9% of human history, we've had one form of communication. And that's talking face-to-face. Or, you know, grunting or pointing or, you know, whatever it was. But it was, you had to be in front of someone to tell them anything. Otherwise, they weren't getting your information. I mean, sure, you could maybe trust that your buddy would tell your buddy who would tell you. But, but at that point, we've all played the game telephones. So, you know, if you weren't in front of a person, you couldn't be sure they heard you. Then, around 500 B.C., we, starting send, we started sending letters. I mean, you know, kind of, sort of. But, I mean, we got better at it and, you know, from then on. We, we at least had now two choices uh, for you know, the next roughly 2,000 years. We had two choices, input or letter. And then telephones were invented in 1876. They weren't really popular until, like, the 1920s. And, in fact, it wasn't until the 1930s that everyone got, like, a seven-digit phone number. Before then, there was, you know, party lines. It doesn't matter. All that nonsense was, you know, fine, whatever. 1930 was when everyone got a phone, more or less. So, I mean, now we we have have three, you know, kind of, sort of. Then in the 70s, we started emailing. Again, originally they were slow and all that, but at least we had that. It wasn't really perfected until the 90s. So 200,000 years or way more, but at least 200,000 years in a row, we had one choice. Then we got a second choice, which was writing letters, and that was about 2,000 years ago. Then we got a third option, the telephone, roughly 100 years ago. So honestly, I'm not sure that we as a species had even had time to fully grasp the concept and the novelty that is talking on a phone. I mean, I know personally, I've taken it for granted my entire life. I you know, just, just forever there's been a phone and it, but it doesn't really even matter because in my entire life, you know, it doesn't, because the last 30 years, roughly, we've been introduced to emails and cell phones and text messaging and sending pictures via email and sending videos via email, you know, copying songs via LimeWire and videos via LimeWire, then MySpace, then Facebook. I mean, everyone has their own digital public journal at this point. You can share any and all thoughts at all times a day. I mean, so for a second, just for, just for a second. Imagine life before all of that. Now imagine life before dating apps. Like, can you imagine dating? Like, like, you had to physically approach a stranger at a bar or you know somewhere. I don't know, pick a social gathering. But you had to pick a stranger, approach them, and just strike up a conversation with no lead-in or you had your friends set you up on blind dates. And I mean, look, I know my friends. I I, I know their choices in life. I don't trust them to set my dog up on a play date with another dog, much less help them, you know, have them help me pick the love of my life or expect them to have any. No, no chance. So now we have dating apps and we have so many dating apps. I mean, you know, the, the, the more nonchalant or, kind of, you know, the, the eHarmony's and Match.com and J-Date and Black People Meet and Farmers Only, you know, all, all of them. There's so many, you know, the, you can you know, skew it however you want, but there's so many of them. Then there are the more direct ones. Uh, direct because I don't know what else to call them. But, you know, stuff like Tinder and Grinder, uh, you know, the, those are far more direct. And then the, even the more absurd things like AshleyMadison.com, like that kind of shit. Like, anyways, now, look, I've been married since before any of those existed. So I have no idea how it works. I mean, I, I'm, I'm only imagining here, just guessing, that Tinder and Grindr are just kinda like the physical prerequisite for dating. I mean, it, more or less, I, I think, I, I'm just assuming here, that you both look at each other's picture decide if that person is in your scope of fuckability and then you go to a date or coffee or whatever and then see if you don't hate them at least not hate them enough to remove them from your scope of fuckability but you know what do i know I, I, obviously nothing so regardless we have these apps and we've had them for maybe one generation maybe maybe a little more whatever but at most you know a couple of years whatever a few years but it's, it's what odds are my children will date solely based on apps and other online stuff and you know, whatever else. The idea uh, of the old school matchmaker, the idea that that concept is done. So consider this. For the first 99.995% of human history, if someone wasn't in the same room as you, you couldn't talk to them, just period. But now you can talk to literally anyone at all times of the day. Regardless of time zone or or even language barrier. Language doesn't mean like we have apps that can translate in real time from one language to another. Genuinely, this morning, just this morning, I was playing chess online in real time with a person in Brazil. Try explaining that to a person from the 40s. Now now try again. Tell someone from the 1700s you were playing chess or anything with someone halfway across the world and, and that doesn't speak your own language. And now try again with anyone born in the BCE era. I mean, you feel me? Like, you, you get where I'm going with this. Like, I, I know I keep getting hung up on, on how recent of a phenomenon the internet is and how much of an afterthought it's already become. I and mean, when we take it for granted, I know I take it for granted on the daily, but it, I think it's become an after, afterthought, at least in part, because everyone has bought in. I mean, right now, Twitter has over 126 million users that log on every day. And I'm sure there's even more if you count you know, every other day or even every week or you know whatever. But regardless, 126 million every day check Twitter. Imgur or Imgur or Imgude has double that. They've got at least 250 million users worldwide. Until 20 years ago, the phone book was the only way to find someone. It was the only choice, literally only. Nowadays, you can Google search someone or, or pull them out on LinkedIn or even Facebook. In Facebook, you can instantly see pictures of them. That way you can confirm it is the right person you're looking for because, you know, Steve Johnson, there's probably hundreds of them in the phone book. So now you can make sure you can look at pictures of, you know, their, their either their kids or their parents or their sisters or their friends. Like, you can guarantee that the person you're looking at and trying to contact is, you know, at least within a very small realm of inaccuracy, you can guarantee that's the person. Meanwhile, the phone book, you just have to pick a name and hope. You don't know. How would you know? So, I mean, it, it, according to Pew Research Center, about two-thirds, and not even about, over, more than two-thirds of all Americans use Facebook. And only one-third of Americans use the phone book. Get that math. Two-thirds have Facebook. One-third use the phone book. That's a fact. Those are facts. Those are, that's researched data. Now, this next statement, I don't have facts on. I just, I, I, I'm willing to bet it's true. I'm willing to bet that the one-third of the people that still use phone books are the same one-third that don't use Facebook. I mean, look, what do I know? Point is, 2.4 billion people use Facebook across the globe. This is the type of unbelievably—this is—everybody that has bought in. 2.4 billion, everyone has or at least can get Facebook. I mean, 2.4 billion have Facebook. More than that could, but they just choose not to. It doesn't matter. Point is— Everyone, I think we've forgotten what life was like just a few decades ago. We've all bought in so hard that we don't even remember. I mean, look, get this stat. Right now, there are 1.3 billion people that live in extreme poverty worldwide. It's less than $2 a day they live on. 1.3 billion people with extreme poverty. At the exact same time, 2.4 billion people use Facebook. So, I mean, look, just remind yourself right now. If you have a Facebook account or a Twitter or anything like that, I mean, like the fact that you're listening to this on the internet, I, I know for sure you are doing better than over a billion people on the planet simply by existing in a place that has the internet. I mean, I, I admit I need to remind myself of this more often because I admit I, I don't want to dwell on that. I mean, we, we've all gotten so used to how awesome life is that we can, you know, we tend to think that sometimes if, you know, if the internet goes out, that it's awful or, you know, whatever. Like I 100% include myself here. I know I've gotten too used to the, the you know, internet and everything else that's so easy with modern day. All I mean, especially with, you know, certain cities have that two-hour delivery on Amazon. I mean, but certainly just about anything you want can be purchased online and delivered to your home. Like, it's, the world we live in is amazing, and I know I forget that all the time. So just take a second to remind yourself that. And also, here's how I can prove that I know I've gotten too used to it, because, recently i took a flight Uh, i was on a plane and it didn't have wi-fi and i was actually genuinely disappointed in the span of my lifetime i was born having no internet not even knowing what the internet was as a child i didn't know what it was until i was you know maybe 12 or 13 doesn't matter but i in my lifetime i went from the span of what is an internet i don't know what you mean to less than 20 years time what do you mean I can't scroll Reddit from an airplane that's miles above the earth traveling at 500 miles per hour? This is bullshit. All that in less than 20 years' time. So I mean, I, I know. I, I've taken it completely for granted, and I need to work on that. And I think I would argue that probably most of us do. And if you don't, if you if you are you know present and aware at all times, good for you. But for everybody else, life is pretty good, y'all. We have to admit it. So because of this rapid transition... I think the Internet is its changing the human evolutionary path like every day. And I don't necessarily know if it's changing life for the better or for the worse. And who cares what I think on the topic? What do I know? But I'd like to think it's for the better. I want to think that you know, having access to information at our fingertips can only help us as a species. But I'm, you know, I don't always know, I don't know that it does. I can't be sure of that. I mean, sure, look, we have access to almost every piece of information we've ever had as a species. And it allows us to, you know, to have all that information, but it also allows us to lie to ourselves and to each other faster than ever before. Mis- misinformation and propaganda can be spread at a pace faster than ever. And depending on each person's individual ability to filter out lies and bullshit, that can be overwhelming. I mean, just think about those one-third of Americans that still use the phone book. They probably have no idea who PewDiePie is, or, or who Ninja the gamer. You know what I mean? Like they don't know who these people are. And good for them. They probably haven't seen all the the, the MLM propaganda and all the political nonsense on Facebook, especially because lately you know it's election season. And Jesus Christ. So so those phone bookers, I mean, they're lucky that unlike the rest of us who have to wade through that garbage just to see what our friends posted that they had for dinner last night, like they don't have to, and look, for the record, I don't care what political party you claim, it doesn't matter where you live or what country you're in or what side you take, conservative, liberal, blue, red, it doesn't matter, all of them lie, all of them. And they all use the internet to help push those lies. That's just, thats I mean, come on, are we really gonna argue that? Okay, moving on. Now, regardless of all that, I I wanna think, and I do think, I, I really do, the internet can help us keep the peace if used correctly. And I know that seems like a grand, sweeping concept, but at least in small gatherings, it genuinely can. I mean, like just for example, when I was in college, if you were out at a bar and you were having a disagreement about a fact, you could debate that all night. I mean, odds are that there wasn't a giant computer, you know, those massive tower computers with dial-up internet access at the bar that you were allowed to use. So a debate like, did Kobe Bryant win four championships or five, that was a real and valid argument at the time. Now, uh, quick side note. I originally uh, this this portion of the the episode uh, originally this was going to be Michael Jordan and did he win five or six? But uh, in light of recent events, I, I had to bring up the Black Mamba. Uh, you know, rest in peace, man. Uh, wow, he was an inspiration to, to my generation and many others. And it, it, you know, he was he was the man, and not just for basketball. Like he he was. Anyways, rest in peace, bro. Uh, five championships. That's that's pretty amazing. So nowadays. It takes like four seconds to Google something. I mean, you can end every pointless debate. At least in some respect, this can help keep the peace in social groups. No more three-hour scream debates well, uh, over stuff that doesn't matter, but at the time, you know, it kind of seems like, you know, whatever. So, you know, me and my buddies used to get mad at each other because we'd be screaming about stuff that didn't matter, but we wanted to be right. Now, you can squash the argument in seconds. You can just Google it, and It's over. So allow me to extrapolate way beyond the limit of reality and imagine if right now, today, in January of the year 2020, what if everyone in America was able to talk with everyone in Iraq? We realize the average citizen of both countries, we all just want the same thing. We want a decent place to live, some good food, and a place to rest. I mean, we have so much in common with literally everyone around the globe. The internet might actually be able to connect us all in, in a way that we can rise above war. We can rise above global politics and realize that just because I was born in one hemisphere doesn't make me any different from anyone else in another hemisphere. I mean, just imagine that. We Imagine all of us collectively realizing at the same time that all we really want is just a place to rest and some good food. You know, good food, like like world peas. Get it? Look, I know that was a just awful way to do But look, I, I, I get that I can easily be tossed aside as a dreamer. But at least I'm not the only one because the internet has shown me that. There are plenty of people that are pushing for this this positive renaissance that could be a collective realization of a, of all of us realizing we're all the same. So I mean, I get it that there are some great parts of the internet, and, and there are some negative. Don't get me wrong; there are plenty of negative sides of the internet. I mean, plenty of you know, online bullying and certain online communities and social networks. I mean, some of it is some of it is awful. I get that the internet can be a horrible outlet for horrible people, and that's fine. But it can be good. It can be used for good too. I mean, look, sharing pictures of grandchildren with grandparents who live far away, that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, you know, all the video calling apps, the stuff where you can video chat or face, you know, it, it's, that's literally the stuff they had in the Jetsons. You know, that used to be viewed as a, as a utopian type technology and now we have it in real life. And when used properly, these things can help relationships stay strong even from a distance. I mean, my kids FaceTime their grandparents all the time and they love it. That's a huge positive use of the internet. So at least in those respects, the internet can help the world feel just a little bit smaller, and it, it kind of, it, at least, it can help you feel closer to you know the people you care about. So, I mean, yeah, much like everything else in life, the internet can be a double-edged sword. I mean, you know, the dark web and you know all the all the negativity. I mean, hell, even just TikTok. The internet can be an awful place, <laughs> but to be fair, it's just a tool. You know, much like knives or guns or bows and arrows, all can be used to hunt and thereby feed people. Or can be used to kill people. It's, it, I'm not even trying to make a statement that this has nothing to do with gun control. I'm just using that as a, as a fact. A gun can kill a deer and feed a family or a gun can kill a family. It's, you know, that, that, just saying, that's a point. The online world is the same thing. You know, sure, it can be used for awful terribleness, but when used positively, I think it has shown us a real world of possibilities. I mean, they could bring about entirely new civilizations, communities built on concepts and ways of life, not based on arbitrary lines drawn on maps you know drawn by people that have long since died just think of that whatever country you live in the borders were established and drawn by people who died hundreds or even thousands of years ago why the fuck are we still using these borders what good is it doing to the majority of society it helps the elite and the supposed rulers of these countries but otherwise the general public of england and the average citizen of russia they don't give a shit. They just care about their families and their hobbies. They don't care about Brexit, honestly. They don't care about you know it's, it, what Russia is may or maybe not doing to meddle in other elections. The average Russian, I would imagine, is just trying to get some bread for his kids. You know what I mean? Like that's just that's I think that's that, that's the possible connection that we can do. Like we could start new online communities. We could just discuss philosophies and belief. Hell, we could just discuss how much we love our pets. Just as a baseline, connected nature. We just hey, I like cats, or you know what? It's we could see how much we have in common, and and, you know, regardless of race or skin color, we we could come together over ideas, talking about new ways to better ourselves in a forum online that can free us, you know, from from the 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 shackles of gender or religion or race or beliefs of any kind just let the ideas shine through without worrying about you know who said it and what country that person came from even if the idea was proposed by you know username big booty bitch 86 if it's a good idea i don't care who said it and the internet helps us see that for what it is regardless of where it came from we could genuinely bring about a new digital landscape for society that's free from physical limitations no race no gender no nationality no anything just ideas not limited by economics and online commerce that's traded, you know, mostly based on ideas and merit from one's mind, a true expression of the soul, bringing about a new era of peace and community for all mankind. They're fucking not. What do I know? You know what I mean? (laughs) Look, if you guys have made it through all of this, especially that last paragraph, I kind of got off on a tangent there, but honestly, I believe it, or maybe I don't. What do I know? Thanks for listening, guys. Uh, this one's uh, another long one. Maybe this is just going to be the new standard. I don't know. But either way, if, you, if you've made it through this one or any of them, uh, thank you. I love you. See you next time.